0: If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn to john chapter twenty one uh, we 're in john twenty one this morning and we 're going to be looking at the last few verses there as we close out our journey through the gospel of John a journey that has taken just over a year uh, next week we 'll be launching into the book of Habakkuk uh, and i 'm really looking forward to jumping into that with you or calling that series from fear to faith and, and i hope that I hope that you'll be as as uh, as blessed by the study of Habakkuk as I've been over the past few weeks, uh, beginning to dig into that. But for today, all right, we're back at the shore of the Sea of Galilee there in John 21. We're there with the resurrected Jesus as he is gathered with his disciples. And John is inviting us, he's inviting you and I, into the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants, all right? That's the invitation that John is giving to us. It's, It's is that all who would read his gospel would believe and that by believing you may have life in his name that's his goal he isn't he isn't building a personal following like john's not trying to get a group of people to track around with him he's not trying to build up his his resume or pad his account or or advance his position in this world he's he isn't inviting people into a super awesome club that everybody will want to be in. That's not what he's doing. The church has never been and never will be at home in this world. And so it's not a hobby. It, it, I like the way Michael Horton has described the church. He, he calls it an embassy of Christ's kingdom. It's a place within this world where the people of God, where the citizens of heaven can gather. And so that's what we do here together. We gather as God's people here, as members of His kingdom. So would you stand with me now as we turn to the word of the king? That's who is speaking to us. That's whose voice we hear. You can't have a kingdom without a king, all right? And in the Bible, what we find is that the king has spoken. So this is John chapter 21, and we're going to start in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you that we can come to you even now. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, who has not remained silent, who does not remain distant, who is not out in the cosmos far away from us, but is actually here present and gathered with us in this little warehouse building on Sunset Boulevard in Lexington. Lord, that you have come and you have gathered with us by your Spirit. That you are here now working amongst us. Would you help us to understand that? Would you help us to feel that even now? Would you open our eyes that we might see you? Would you unstop our ears so that we might hear from you? And Lord, would you come today and awaken our souls that we might draw near to you? That we might know you? That we might love you? That we might serve you? Lord, these are big prayers We pray them to a big God, and and so we ask you to come and do those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Just the other night, we were all at home. We had the whole crew there, which doesn't happen in our family very often, at least not nearly as often as we would like. We're at that age where we've got kids involved in different stuff, and so we're rarely able to all be home together. And uh, But this time of year, with, with school starting to wind down, some of the seasons starting to end, uh, we, we find some times to just be outside. You know, it's not too hot here yet. Like, you can go outside this time of year in South Carolina without worrying about just spontaneously combusting, right? Uh, everything is green. The lake hasn't turned totally brown quite yet. You know, it's that pretty time of year where it actually looks a little blue. And so we were all there. The boys and I were out in the yard. We were kicking a ball around, and the little one just disappeared, which he has a tendency to do. We don't freak out. He normally comes back. Um, (laughs) I hear him, all right? I hear him with his sweet little voice, you know, and he's calling out uh, from the garage, and he just says, Daddy, come here, which is how he, he doesn't ask. He He makes commands, Daddy, come here, right? He's a powerful little guy. Uh, He was in the garage. I was just around the corner out in the yard, so I couldn't see him. I could just hear him. I I was out there with his brother, and so I did what uh, most of us would probably do. He said, Daddy, come here, and I I didn't go there. I I didn't obey the command, right? Uh, But instead, I called back to him from the yard and said what I often do in that situation Um, I didn't go to him, but I called back and I said, what do you think I said? What is it, buddy? Yeah, you come here. Yeah, I'm writing that down. That is the play to make next time. Yeah, what is it, buddy? I might come, but I want to know what it is first. Now, to be fair, he's at that age where he still wants to show me everything, right? Every single thing. And I know that I should appreciate that. So you don't have to tell me that at the door on the way out. I know that it goes really fast. I mean, I really do know that. In my heart, I know that. So don't don't judge me too badly here. And I love that my kid wants to show me everything. But in the moment when he calls, it just happens so instinctively. I want to know what it is that he is calling me for two. You know, last week, if you weren't here last week, we saw Jesus restoring Peter. Peter had failed on on an epic scale. He He had denied Christ. And so we saw him restoring him. And he asked him three times. He asked Peter three times if he loved him. And three times Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He made those three professions of his love in view of the other disciples, in view of the other men, those other men who had heard of Peter's denials. This is public restoration. And after each, of those, after each of those professions of love, Jesus gave Peter what we call a commission. It's just like my son saying, come here, daddy, come here. Peter was told to do three things things. He told Peter to feed my lambs, to tend my sheep, and to feed my sheep. That's what, Pe- that's what Jesus said to Peter. He gave him a threefold restoration and a threefold commission. He commissioned Peter there in front of, in front of his brothers to the shepherding work in the kingdom of God. And this reminds us of the life of a Christian, the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is a life of service. Is that we it's that we aren't just called from something, but we are called to something. We aren't just called away from something, but we are called, well, we're called for something. It's that Jesus has a purpose for each one, for every single one of his people in this world. And so just like my son calling to me the other day, Jesus isn't just calling us out of the yard. He's calling us into the garage, and that's what, that's what we see with Peter. Jesus isn't just calling him out of the boat. He isn't just calling him up onto the shore, but Jesus is calling him. He's calling Peter into the life of Christ, into the life of a Christian, and he gives us a preview of what that might look like. And the first thing we see here in verses 18 and 19, and this is really something, because if you think about it, these are the last words that John records Jesus speaking to his disciples he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, I know we don't use that phrase very often. We don't say truly, truly. We don't go, hey, truly, truly, I need to tell you something. Now, it'd be cool if you started that. It could become like a trend or something. You could start a hashtag, truly, truly. I don't know if it'll take off or not. But, but that's a phrase that is used throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, John uses that phrase. He records Jesus saying that phrase, truly, truly, 50 times in 25 different verses just in the Gospel of John. It's literally the words. If you were to look this up. In your Greek New Testament that you have on your desk at home, which I, I know you all have, you would see it where it says, instead of truly, truly, it says, amen, amen. In fact, if you really want to be uh, critical about it, it says, amen, amen, and we say it totally backwards when we say it in here. But that's what it means. It's the same saying. It's, a, it's, it's him saying, I'm telling you the truth. That's what we say when we say, amen. We say, this is true. We affirm that this is truth. When we, by the way, Presbyterians could be a little more aggressive with the amens. Okay, like, uh, amen? You see, that's what happens. You have to ask for it in Presbyterian circles. You do the amen with a little question mark at the end, and we, but you have to ask for it here. It's okay. Y'all can amen. If something true is said, you say amen, right? Or amen. That means it's true. It's affirming. That's why when we pray with our kids at night and we say amen at the end, we're saying this is true. This is what we're laying before you. This is our heart that we are bearing out for you. If you didn't know that, that's what amen means. It means true. That's what we're saying. And so Jesus is saying, look, let me make this clear. This is that last moment that he gets with Peter. He's saying, I need to tell you the truth. And this is what he tells me. He says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then here's what verse 19 says. It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So here's the first thing that we should notice, and it's pretty simple. Is that the life of Christ is not an easy life. The life of Christ is not an easy life. Now, that should be pretty obvious if we just consider the actual life of Jesus on earth, as we consider that this one who knew no sin could be maligned, could be beaten, could be condemned, could be killed. If we consider that, if we just take an honest look at that, then we should understand that the life of Christ is not an easy life. But for some reason, so much of the time, Christianity is sold as a, as a sort of fast track to the good life. It's packaged in this neat wrapper that says if you buy into this, if you if you if you take this gift, then everything in your world will will look better. It's, it's like the old truck advertisements that you used to see on TV back, back in the day, I kn- back when we used to have to watch commercials. If you remember those, like and I was a kid and you were growing up and you were watching whatever, Dukes of Hazard or Knight Rider. If you, that tells you a lot about my childhood, by the way. That's kind of where I was. Right, there we go. And so if you're, if you're in that time and you're watching the commercial and all of a sudden like a Chevrolet commercial comes on and it's not a truck sitting in a parking lot. It's not a truck sitting in a suburban home in a driveway. It's a truck in Montana going through a river, stuff's blowing up, and then they drop big rocks into it, and then like a cowboy gets out of it, puts his hat on. And and you you see, they're not just selling the truck, man. They're selling the lifestyle. That if I get the Silverado, think about that. Think about how many cars, by the way, that we, like I used to drive a Subaru Outback, you know, Outback, like I'm in Australia, I mean, we live vicariously through our car names all the time. We're nowhere half as adventurous as our car names would like for us to think we are. But you drive the Silverado, and now you're not just driving the Silverado. You're like a man. And then Ford has the same thing where they drop a bigger rock in an F-150, right? And that's just that's what it was. Some of you still remember those things. They're not selling the truck as much as the persona. They're selling the lifestyle that you could expect to find when you got behind the wheel of that brand new truck. And we see it in the faith today. We see the same thing happening in Christianity today. It's this idea that's being sold that coming to Jesus means coming into comfort, that it means coming into prosperity. And the new Christianity that's that's being sold often looks more like fixer-upper than it looks like the life of Jesus What we're selling today, we're selling Joanna Gaines, we're selling designer jeans, and we are selling shiplap, all right? And we expect Jesus to roll back the sign and show us the new and improved us. And the faith is often peddled as a sort of product that we can purchase for our own enhancement rather than a life that was purchased for us at the cross. Listen to me. Peter understood what Jesus was saying to him on the shore that day. I know we don't. We don't naturally think we're talking about stretching out your arms. John understood it too. That's why he adds that note. John adds that commentary there for us in verse 19. You see, John wanted to be sure that the readers understood that Jesus wasn't just talking about Peter aging. Okay, we all reach that point. We all reach that point. At some point in our lives, where stretching for anything becomes a chore. We're stretching out our hands becomes a legitimate issue, but that's not what Jesus is telling Peter here. He's not telling him you're going to get old and sore. He's not telling Peter about a stiff back or sore shoulders. He isn't predicting rotator cuff surgery and Peter's future. Jesus is telling him now how he's going to die. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And we can see how this shaped Peter's understanding of his life for every moment that would come after it. We can see how Peter understood himself and the purpose and his purpose in light of Christ's calling and commission. That's why Peter addressed his first letter. If you've ever paid attention to Peter's first letter, he 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 writes it to those who he calls elect exiles. Those elect exiles... Those whom Peter says are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, to be an exile is to be someone who lives in a place in which they do not belong. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3.20 that our, that our citizenship is in heaven. You see, we're here on earth, but this is not our home. Exiles don't fit We're the round peg trying to fall into the square hole. That's what a Christian is in the world. And if you remember kindergarten, you know that that doesn't work very well. Some of us in the church have really failed to embrace our identity as exiles. We're still convinced that that we can embrace both the culture and the church and still walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We can square off our edges just enough that we might be able to slip into the round hole or maybe the world just won't recognize that we're a circle. But you see, the problem with that thinking is that it's the exact opposite of the way the Bible describes the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants Peter to understand what he has said back in Matthew seven fourteen, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's the way Jesus put it. The author of Hebrews said that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Did you hear that? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance means the power to withstand against hardship and stress. There's nothing to endure if it's easy. I mean sometimes the world around us is really going to press down on us. And the temptation will be to try to fit into the culture around us and I know you feel that. Because if we're honest, we know we know that this hardship doesn't normally look like someone standing at our door with a sword. When we think persecution, often we think, we think of the most dramatic version of that that we can think of. We think of somebody threatening our life. We think of, we think of the child who's being threatened to, to, either, to either claim or deny Jesus. But that's not usually how it happens. Usually it's in far more mundane circumstances. In his book, uh, Evangelism as Exiles, which is a new book that I would recommend to you, it's called Evangelism as Exiles by a guy named Elliot Clark. He describes our present hardships. So he describes it this way. He says, "This derision can occur when you decline the invitation to your friend's bachelor party, when you refuse unethical business practices, when you turn down the offer of drugs, when you won't cheat on a test, when you don't sleep around, when you don't excuse yourself or sorry, when you do excuse yourself from an inappropriate movie, when you won't lie about your age, when you don't laugh at cross humor, when you refuse to break the law when you won't join in endless gossip, and when you miss the Sunday soccer game. This is where the tension comes in our lives. This is where the world begins to war against us. I've never had anyone show up at my door and threaten me. I have had them leave us out because we refuse to engage. That's what persecution looks like. It's in the ordinary that the Christian is called to live an extraordinary life and it's going to be different for each and every one of us and that brings us to the second thing that i want us to see in this passage yes the christian life is is not an easy life that's true but it's also this that the life of christ is not a generic life look back at verse 20 with me there It's not a generic life. Peter turned. And who does Peter see? He sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, look, at you've got to see Peter in this moment. They are walking. He's just had this incredible moment with Jesus. Jesus had just restored him. And now he's telling him, look, I've restored you, but you need to know it's going to go bad for you. That's what you're going to die on a cross. That's what Jesus just told Peter. And the lesson of history is that Yes, Peter probably died on a cross during the reign of Emperor Nero. That's what we know. There's not a whole lot of evidence to support the idea that he was crucified upside down. If you want to believe that one, that's fine. That's more of a myth than anything else. But we do know that Peter died on a cross. So Jesus tells him, This is what's going to happen. It's going to go bad for you. And he turns and sees this other disciple and he goes, What about him? What about him? I mean, can you see them walking down the road at this moment? Peter's going, so I'm going to die. How about this guy? <coughs> but this one is what Jesus said to him. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I don't know. I want you to hear this. I don't know of a greater enemy of joy in this life than the game of comparison. We can talk about tragedy. Bad things do happen. People die too young. People get wounded in ways that we cannot explain. These things do happen. But the greatest enemy of joy in this world is not the tragedy, it's the game of comparison that we all play. Even though we all hate it. I've been reading the biography uh, or the autobiography of. Um, I don't know why somebody recommended this book to me. It's the autobiography of Andre Agassi. I'm not a tennis player or an Agassi fan, but they said the book was great. And so I picked it up and I've been reading. You know what he says from the very beginning? I hate tennis. That's literally the theme, the cover, it's, the cover is, it's called Open. It literally should be called I Hate Tennis. He says that a thousand times in that book. He hated it. He dropped out of school in ninth grade to, to be a tennis player. He regrets not getting an education. He regrets not having friends. He regrets so many things. And he says, I have hated tennis since I was born. And I still hate it today. Why did he play it? Because he was good at it. He was really good at it. That's how we are with the game of comparison. We hate the game. We hate it so much because it drives us insane comparing ourselves to other people spiritually, comparing ourselves to other people materially or professionally. I know that there are people in here right now who have struggled in their, I know it's Mother's Day. Let me give you a Mother's Day piece that's not in the notes. I know there are mothers in here who will struggle and struggle and struggle because their kid doesn't stack up like they perceive other people's kids. Please stop that. Just be you. Just be the mom who you're meant to be, okay? Raise your kid. Some kids can run fast and some can't. That doesn't increase or decrease your value as a mother. There you go. That's all I get. That's all you get for Mother's Day. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> the Gospel of John just did not do much with Mother's Day at this point, okay? But we play this game of comparison all the time, not because we love it, but because we're good at it because we're naturally wired to engage in it. It's exactly what we see here when Peter asks the Lord, what about this man? And listen, it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to be concerned about other people. It's not that Jesus doesn't want us to be concerned about our brothers and sisters in faith. It's not that at all. Just in the New Testament alone, I'm going to go so fast here you'll think I've sneezed, but he's what he says, we are called in just the New Testament to love one another with brotherly affection. We're called to outdo one another in showing honor. We're called to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you and to greet one another with a holy kiss. You've got to be careful with that one, just for the record you got to warn somebody before you greet them with a holy kiss. All right, We're to be kind to one another. We're to forgive one another. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. We're called to teach and admonish one another. As the people of God, we're called to encourage one another and build one another up. And that is just a sampling. You could go on for the next 20 hours talking about the one another's that we're called to in the New Testament. So it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to be concerned with one another. It's that we're... He said he doesn't want us to spend our lives comparing it to one another because our stories will not play out exactly like one another. We're called to live out our story in Christ, and that's not a generic story. Your story is not generic, your story is not common, your story is not boring. Your story is unique. Peter's going to say to the early church in 1 Peter 2, this is what he's going to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those four things, a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. You see how each one of those, each one of those things invokes sort of a corporate identity. They're broad. Those aren't individual things. To be a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people, those are, those are big things. That's a gathering of a multitude. That's a gathering of many into those things, into races, priesthoods, nation, and people. But each of those broader groups is made up of what? Individuals. You can't have a nation with no people. You can't have a race with no people. You can't have a people with no people. Listen to me, you cannot be, this is the truth, you cannot be a Christian by association with anyone other than Jesus Christ. Being a friend of Peter will not save you. Being a friend of John will not save you. And that's why Jesus told Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I can't live out your story. I can walk with you, but I cannot walk as you because every single human life is a sovereign creation of God and God alone. And the only rewards to be won in the game of comparison are discontentment and envy. That's the trophy you stand to win. The moment you figure out how to keep up with the Joneses, you're going to have to start figuring out how to keep up with the Smiths. Jesus knows that the life of Christ is not an easy life because he lived it. And he knows that it's not a generic life because he is the one who created us for it. And as John closes out this gospel... He reminds us of one other thing, and that's the last thing that we're going to see here today. It's that the life of Christ is life to the full. Look back at verse 24. John writes this. This is the disciple. He claims this book right here. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. As he closes this out, by the way, the way that really reads is the scroll wouldn't be long enough. That the scroll, you could unravel scroll from here until infinity, it wouldn't be enough to encapsulate everything that Jesus did. As he closes this out, he identifies himself as the author. He said, This is the one who was there at the cross. I'm the one who was there at the trials. I'm the one who was there on the hillside as Jesus fed the multitudes. I'm the one who was there when Jesus healed the lame, opened the eyes of the blind, and set the captives free. John might have even said, I was the one who was there when he turned water into wine, like the little guy told us earlier. You can sort of see him as he sits there, the Holy Spirit bringing back to John's mind all of these moments that he experienced in his short, short time walking with Jesus. You know that this church has existed for half of the time that Jesus' entire earthly ministry lasted? Have you ever thought about that? Three years. John has had three years of him, and he cannot begin to say everything that Jesus did in that time. He remembers that. He can see Jesus in the boat as he says to Peter, It is the Lord. He's reflecting here, something we could do a lot more of in our lives. He's thinking back. And all he can bring himself to say is that there isn't enough space in all of the world to contain every detail of Jesus's life. And I love the way William Hendrickson describes this. He says that, that no finite number can ever record the deeds performed by infinite love. It's the same dilemma we reach on a Mother's Day, how do you begin to describe a mother's influence, right? I mean, we, we can't, how do you describe that in any, in any real way? All we can do is give it our best shot, and that's what John has done here in his gospel. He's saying, this is the best shot I can give you. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus doesn't call, doesn't just call us from something, but he calls us to something. Peter said it in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what Peter, who had been told, this is how you're going to die. That's what he said. Peter says that God did this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, it's not just that God saves us from something, even though that is certainly true, but it's that he saves us to something. To something. Like my son calling from the garage, God isn't calling us to just come Out of our present condition, he's calling us into a new life. And the voice we hear is that of the good shepherd calling to his sheep. It's the voice of the one who sees us in this world, who sees us in our fear, who sees us in the darkness, and he calls us out by name. Remember in John 10, that's what he said? And he said this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's that his people might know the fullness of life in him. And we won't have to play the game of comparison anymore because we've received the greatest gift of all time. We can quit shaking the envelope hoping that something extra falls out of it. But we'll walk in the joy of contentment because even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. The life of Christ is not an easy life. Jesus said that the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction Like, it is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That's the easy life. It doesn't take take a whole lot of effort to find destruction. You don't have to look very far to find that. It's easy. It's our default heading in the journey of this life, and the wind of our culture, I promise you, is blowing us in that direction. And all sorts of paths lead that way, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few but you're being offered entry. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus offers you an opportunity to come into the gate of life. That's what you're being offered even today. In his grace and in his mercy, Jesus has made a way for you and I to live. I don't know that it could be said any better than the five-year-old said it right here, that Jesus died on the cross so that we might live. Sometimes it works out that you hear the gospel from a child more clearly than you can articulate it to a worker. But that's it. He has become the door for us to walk through. And what we find is not just life, but we find life abundant. And we give him the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We we thank you with all the thankfulness that we can muster, that you saw us, that you, you saw us in our, in our depravity, that you see us in our dirt and in our shame and in our guilt. You see us at our absolute worst. You see us when we want to hide and we don't want anybody else to see us. You see us and you don't run the other direction, but you come running to us. Jesus, you came to us not when we're at our best, but when we are at our absolute worst, and you don't make us better, you make us new. God, I thank you, and I give you praise and honor and glory for the fact that you are a God who saves. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the joy of that this week. Help us to to fight off the natural tendency of comparison. Help us to quit playing that game. Put that one on the shelf and let it rot. Let us start living life to the full, living the abundant life that you've called us to in Christ. Help us to be your disciples, and Lord, make that be enough. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.